I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah. It's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cock. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. <laughs> have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it again. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Yeah. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica. And I think this will be a bit more whiskey-y than some of the podcasts that we've done, where we obviously they'll be whiskey drunk, but I think we'll be talking about whiskey a lot more because uh, it's an absolute honour to have on the podcast the co-owner of Impex Beverages, who bring into this country whiskey from all sorts of fascinating places, like Scotland, obviously, and Japan, but also Wales and Israel and Belgium and Yorkshire. So um, there's plenty to discuss. And the person I'm discussing it with doesn't have the Scottish accent that most of the people I've had on before who are the whiskey experts. This guy is as American as they get. So welcome to the podcast, all the way from Georgia, the state, not the country, Chris Uday. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so how does, how does a Georgia boy end up being the main importer of amazing Japanese whiskies and Pandarin and Kiloman and Glenallachy and all that sort of stuff. What's your whiskey journey story, Chris? And do you want to have a whiskey while we while you tell it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, uh, it's a bit of a story, so pour a big glass because it, well, it takes a minute to tell. All right. So what but, are you um, drinking? I'm going to drink the Fukano Women Who Whiskey Edition. So oh, right. We're both drinking it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Great. We're going to okay. do the same whiskey, and then I'm going to back it up with a bottle that's – I'm going to flex a little bit and do a bottle that's got my name on it. Oh, look at you. <laughs> look at you. You're a professional. All right. So you very kindly – we uh, Chris and I play soccer together or football, whatever you have to call it here, and he very kindly gave me a bottle of whiskey, which is my favorite type of guest who does that. Um, so tell us about the uh, Fukano Women Who Whiskey Special Edition. Well, first, let me congratulate you on scoring your 100th goal with with the team. That happened just a couple of days ago. Uh, it was I tried I tried to not let you do it by getting in the way of your first brilliant header, but luckily <laughs> you got the rebound off of me and, and put it in the back of the net. But um, the Fukano Women Who Whiskey is a so uh, Chizuru Fukano is the person who helped me establish help us establish the the Fukano whiskey for the global market. And this was in addition to just celebrate her career at the distillery. She'd, she'd been there for many, many years. And her last act of managing director before she retired was signing off on the project of bottling Fukano as whiskey for the export market. So it was a limited edition of about 3,000 bottles. We did, it was a collaboration with Women Who Whiskey. And it was primarily um, manzanilla sherry cask, uh, some red wine cask, and then some used white oak casks. And it's, it's wonderful. It's made from rice, so it'll be different for you, but it's, it's absolutely delightful and delicious. And I, I hope you like it because... Fantastic. Given when this episode comes out, last week would have been International Women's Day was part of last week. So 
uh, uh, women who whiskey whiskey seems entirely appropriate. I like the fact normally at this point when I open a new whiskey, you hear the sound of the cork. But obviously this is a screw top, which is interesting. I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure I know when I last had a screw top whiskey, if ever. The funny thing about that is the the type of, the fact that it's a screw top was dictated by the glass that we were able to get that was going to be sellable in the U.S. market. At the time, 700 ml bottles were illegal in the U.S. and so were 720s. You had to do it in a 750 or you could do you could do a 50 ml or a 200 or a 375, but to get that mid to large format, 750 was the required size for the U.S. Now, those laws have since changed. But the only stock glass we could get in the south of Japan was a very short bottle and this bottle, and they were both screw tops. So that's why it's a screw top whiskey. And so, so once we established it that way, we just left it. So I'm going to make a point about the whiskey, and then we're going to talk about screw tops. So it's lovely. Thank you. It's, it's really good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I, I blended it. <laughs> yeah, so mate, oh, this is very good. So it's very different. Which is- yeah, so so the it's distilled from rice, and the rice distillate is heavy malle- heavily malleable by that cask, so it doesn't take a lot of cask influence to to impart a lot of notes to it. So you and it leans to make it leans for a lot of the casks to show really well, and then when you put them together, they just they sing really well, even even more so. It's perfect. It's an easy whiskey to vet. Yeah, I don't want to sound like one of those whiskey people who's oh I've I've had every whiskey there is because obviously I haven't, but I've. I don't drink new whiskies very often because I've been lucky enough to drink lots of whiskey over the I don't, you know. But this is really new and really different and fantastic. Well, as they say, yeah. you're not gonna out scotch scotch. You're not gonna out bourbon bourbon. Yeah. Just do something new. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Cheers, that's great. Thank you. Cheers. So just because this is not something we've talked about, I know in the wine world. When people start doing screw top wines, some people got very upset and very snobby about it. But actually, you can get some very nice and very expensive wine that comes in a screw top. So, is it basically the same situation in the whiskey world? That yeah, people like corks for sure. However, you know you can get corked whiskey. That that I forget the name of the the bacteria that can grow on the cork that can ruin a wine, but it can also ruin a whiskey. I've had. Out of all the whiskeys I've had, I've seen corked whiskey four or five times in my life, and it does happen. And with a screw yeah. top, you never have that problem. No, no. It's got, I mean, people like the cork obviously because of the the sound. Yeah. And I think you know, part of whiskey, one of the reasons it's something we don't talk about that often. One of the things that I love about whiskey, obviously, I love the liquid that one drinks. But for me, it's also the whole thing. You know, it's the conversations that you have, but it's the shapes of the bottle. Like some of my favorite whiskeys, weirdly, I remember. So, I had to explain to somebody why Cardu was my favourite sort of, it's my daily sipper, as it were. Like, that's my whiskey that I drink the most often. And the reason I first started liking it was I like the shape of the bottle. Um, and it's funny which what attracts you to whiskey. And I remember when I first was privileged enough to drink expensive whiskeys, I remember I had a Glenlivet 25, mm-hmm. and it was lovely, but box it came in it wasn't obviously just a carton there's this beautiful wooden box with magnets it actually took there were three of us it took about three of us about half an hour to open it because <laughs> we didn't know it was magnets and we were trying to open it we didn't want to break the box until we realized it was a magnet and you do need a bit of force but like part of the when you when you buy that it's like a three or four hundred dollar whiskey or something it was then um 
you're almost paying for the box and the magnets and the presentation and the bottle as well as the taste. So you can see why people more probably with whiskey than wine would get upset about screw tops. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely caught an earful about it sometimes, but um, like with anything, people kind of get used to it and then they move on past it. And there's even some companies that have moved to glass corks because they don't want to have to worry about the whiskey getting corked and other companies that are moving towards screw tops because they find that the whiskey holds up better for long, long, long periods of storage. Yeah. So. I've got a, I don't know, I've got about 100 bottles of whiskey, 80 of which are open. I'm not a collector. Like, I collect them, but I collect them to drink. But the other day, I think it's a, I've got a Balveni 15, and the cork, it's not corked, but I broke the top off the cork. Yeah. So it's all a bit mess now. And I guess I could decant it, but I, I don't I've, The only decanter I've got is a Stormtrooper helmet. <laughs> like a glass Stormtrooper helmet. It doesn't feel like the right place to put a Balvenie 15. But anyway, my point is, actually, I could get into screw tops because I'm a bit clumsy. So they, um, they make tools now where you can go down and pull that cork out. It's, it's like a, it looks like, um, it looks like three coat hangers put together and you stick it in the bottom and you can grab it. And the compression, as you pull it out, grabs the cork and pulls it out with it. The other trick I've learned is um, you can actually pour the whiskey into a separate container and you take a clean plastic bag and you put it in it and, and then you blow it up and you pull it. And in one swift motion, it'll grab the cork and pull everything out as the, the air is deflating out of the bag. It's crazy. It's like opening a beer with a table, right? You just go, boom. You just, yeah. you just figure out a way to do it when you're drunk and don't have the right tools. <laughs> What I might do is just give it to you and then ask the guys about Benny to give me another bottle and just start again. That's the other option. Um, but That works. I like Balvenie quite a bit. Yeah. So, anyway, I asked you a question about 10 minutes ago, which was how did you get into whiskey? So let's go back to that, please. So I got into whiskey because I'm a, I'm a lucky bastard. I fell into it. I used to live in, a, in Athens, Georgia, a little music town. And I woke up one day and... It took me 12 years to finish my, my undergrad in college. Like, I'm, I'm not a bright guy. And I woke up one day and kind of took a hard look at my life. And all of my girlfriends have been between the ages of 18 to 23 for the last decade. And I was starting to kind of become that guy in town. So I packed <laughs> up story. everything I had. <laughs> it's, this is the truth. I had it because of, we used to play in rock bands and we used to go up and tour the East Coast and whatnot. So I had a couch in New York. And one of the guys I used to play with had moved to L.A. And so I had a couch in, in L.A. And I'd been to New York before because, like I said, we used to go play there. But I'd never been to L.A. So I, I made a trip out to L.A. to see him. And he couldn't get off work that day. And he worked at a liquor store. Now, I love my friends quite a bit. So instead of and I had no money. So instead of walking around the city with no money, I hung out with him at the liquor store. And, you know, you get bored because you just there's only so much you can do you know, messing around a liquor store. So I put a lot of boxes away. I helped him stock the shelves. And these guys came in, my now business partner actually came in to sell him whiskey. And uh, because I was friends with the buyer, they let me try the whiskey as well. And I tried a, a single cask, single malt Scotch whiskey. And it just blew my mind that whiskey could be like that. Because I'd spent years drunk off of whiskey and cheap beer and mint shots, like you name it, I would, I would completely drink it. And this kind of blew my mind. So- yeah. I have, to stop, I have to stop this. We can talk about this. This story can be the whole podcast. But, but um, so what was the scotch? And so my two questions are, what was the scotch that blew your mind? And the second question is, 
What did you just say? Rumpled Stiltskin shots, did you say? <laughs> rumple mints. Rumpel, if you take rumple mints and Jaeger, you mix them, we call them chipmunks. Wait, wait, wait. So, so what's, <laughs> what are rumple mints? The rumple mints is like a mint liqueur, okay. like a peppermint liqueur. And what do you, we you we would drink in, anything. If it had alcohol it, in it, we'd drink it. And you put Jaeger? Yeah, yeah. You put it in Jaegermeister? Yeah, equal parts. And then what happens to it? <laughs> We call them chipmunks. I, I, I don't know if that's the right name for it, but we right. no, it's just, I've never heard of rumple mints. Um, I'm now going to try and find some. Um, Dude, that and Goldschlager would have had the gold flakes in it. Like that oh, was the know, fancy stuff. Yeah, yeah. I drank Goldschlager because it had gold flakes in it. We also, I think we used to, yeah, we used to do yoga bombs when we were young and silly. But we, I only did it once and I regretted it enormously. So I assume it's the same in America. Yoga bomb is you drop a shot of yoga into a pint of beer and you down the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever done a reverse Jaegermann where you drop a shot of beer into a pint of Jaeger and see how far you can get. No, that sounds like a disaster. Yeah, that was an English <laughs> student thing. Anyway, right, sorry. So tell me about the scotch. It was a, I think it was a 1995 Manic Moore South African cherry, but single cast from Signatory Scotch Whiskey. And uh, it was, it was, it was just, it was interesting because in, Hindsight being 2020, it was a really good scotch, not like a mind-blowing scotch, but considering what my basis was for knowing about whiskey, it, it completely opened up my eyes to what whiskey could be. And in addition to that, they were, they were teaching this neat trick where it was unchill filter and they were showing how if you added water to it, it would cause the oils in the malt to come out of solution and, and cause the, the malt to become like a, a milky white, which is kind of fascinating as well. So now we're playing with booze and we're drinking booze that's completely interesting and I'm 100% intrigued by it. That was the whiskey. So those guys left. And um, at the end of my buddy's shift, his boss came out and he offered me a job. He's like, you moved enough boxes. I hear you're thinking of moving out here. If you come out, I need a guy. You can, you can work for me. And my buddy had also called Sam, my business partner, and said, this guy can sell igloos to Eskimos. You're looking for a rep. You need to hire him. Basically, my buddy didn't want me on his couch for too long. So then I had a couch in LA and two jobs. So I packed up the van, my $180, my buddy, we, my buddy and I, we drove cross country. We made it to Vegas in two days where he had money. So he gambled and had a great time while I sat there looking miserable because I didn't have any money. And then we came to California after that. And then I, that, that's, that's how I got into whiskey. And then what happened was I got embarrassed at a whiskey tasting, not even six months into it. The guy who was supposed to speak couldn't make his flight. And they sent out another guy who couldn't speak in front of people. So we had this 65 person event that we we're supposed to have a scotch master for speaking to everyone. And he couldn't talk to them about any whiskeys. And we had all these fancy whiskeys and it was a complete disaster. And um, I swore to myself that I would never let that happen again. So I just studied, studied, studied. And then I started talking about scotch whiskey to anyone who would listen. And then a guy named Bill Esparza, who's a food critic, wrote about me in 2008 that got my name on the map a little bit then the daily pint in santa monica phil the owner of that became a friend of mine and said what would you do with this place if you had a budget to kind of build it out because i told him that i thought whiskey was at the beginning of a of a big boom this is back when whiskey was super cheap you could get you know 30 year old blended malt for sub 100 bucks it was just ridiculously cheap i said i think this is about to happen he gave me a budget to do it we started making uh making waves in different magazines and, and they um, rated his bar like the best whiskey bar west of the Mississippi. 
And he was so cool about it because instead of him taking the credit, he mentioned my name in the articles. And then it just kind of went from there. And then in 2016, LA Magazine named me the first voice of whiskey for Los Angeles. And at that same year, I had come up with a project with another buddy of mine for doing um, the rice whiskeys out of Japan. And that's when my now business partner said, you've put in your time with me. I have this, I have this other license. He tells it different. He says that I, I flexed him. But the truth is, I, I think we just kind of realized there was a synergy there between us. So he had another license that we ran that project through. And that, that grew to a point where we decided to merge that company with Impex Beverages. And then I became co-owner of Impex Beverages. And that's how I got to be an owner of a company that imports awesome Scotch whiskeys. Amazing. That's a great story. That's a great story in lots of ways. I mean, it's going to sound very English, but, but it's a bit of the American dream. You know, yeah, absolutely. Failed, failed rock star comes to LA, inadvertently <laughs> gets a job, ends up yeah. getting two more jobs, but then does it properly. Like, not just overnight success, genuinely grafts, puts in his 10,000 hours, and then becomes an expert. And then you go from there. I guess uh, I'm not sure I owe you an apology as such, but I almost feel bad now that it's been a bit of a standing joke because obviously we see each other. Pretty much, we've seen each other almost every week for the last three years, apart from the gap during the pandemic because we play football together. And obviously, I host a whiskey podcast. You work in the whiskey business. I'm now 83 episodes into this. I've had all sorts of whiskey people on, including about three of the people we play football with. And I've never asked you on, and it's become a bit of a joke. In fact, the guy who works for you, Johnny Whiskey and Donuts, has already been on. <laughs> and I've not had you on, even though you are the 2016 voice of whiskey for Los Angeles or for the world? What was the? That was for Los Angeles, and then I got like yeah. I got mentioned in a few other publications like Forbes and whatnot. It's it's fun, it's good, but to be fair, everyone you've had on are great people, right? So it's not a. At least no, I got but, it while it was still in two digits. No, but none of them were the 2016 <laughs> voice of whiskey for LA. Um, but I'm, that was I'm, fun, man. See your picture in the like a, an illustration of you in LA magazines. That's a fun thing to send back home. No, no, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so. I don't want to ask sort of too many obvious questions, but I guess what what is the it's a hard question to answer. Um, but what is the best whiskey you think you've drunk? I can you tell you find the most expensive whiskey I think I've drunk. Well, that's not necessarily the question, but you can answer, yeah, no. answer that one and then tell me the best one. The most expensive one was probably a 1946 Macallan or the 60-year Lalique from Macallan. Those trade at really high dollars. The best they are, whiskey. They're like 80, 90 grand more. Who knows what they are now? Like it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, I was at the right place at the right time and, you know, and it was offered. So I took it. The, um, the best whiskey I've ever had. That, that's, that's impossible to say. I've got, I've got ones that, you know, just kind of really stick out. Like there's one called Moidart 30 year. I've got a, I've got a bottle of that. Like when I die, everyone's going to drink it at my wake. Or I'm going to drink it before then by myself and just enjoy the hell out of the bottle. I still haven't decided what's going to happen. That's a really good one. Um, I love this bottle. This is a 17-year Impex collection that we did. This is kind of like the big, the, the, this is basically barley and koji, and it's a whole new world of whiskey, but it's got this savory umami component that I love quite a bit. It's one of my favorites of all time, legitimately of all time. And then... Um, I don't know, like some long morns from the 1960s. It would be, it would be, it wouldn't be bourbon. It would definitely be either 
either single malt scotch or Japanese. I do gravitate towards those. So to pick one is difficult, but if I had to pick, I could tell you my favorites tend to come out of the single malt category. So how many, if I was to come around your, obviously we do this on Zoom, but if I was to come around your house now, how many bottles of whiskey would I find in your house? Depends on which closet you looked in. (laughs) I mean, I don't have as many as a lot of other collectors, but what I have is what I have are really cool. It's, it's, it's been curated well, and I have enough booze to, I could have multiple drinks a day for the rest of my remaining days on earth and still have more than I could ever drink. Yeah. Like I've done the math on it because of, because <laughs> yeah, I was like, Oh, I'll never drink through all this. I was like, wait a minute, can I? And then I did the math and I was like, no, I'm never going to drink through all this. Well, uh, though, it's funny to say, because I think pre pandemic, I probably had, if you include samples, um, I don't know, 30 or 40 bottles, but then during the pandemic, for a combination of reasons, some of it is with the podcast, people started sending me stuff. Also, I think people had marketing budget they couldn't use, and I knew a guy who had a whiskey store, and between those things, I just started yeah. collecting whiskey. And I've probably got 100, 100, 150. But That's a lot of bottles. That is, and, and I say, all of them are open, and the ones that aren't open, they will be open. I'm not Keep, I don't have like a collection that I'm keeping, even though some of them are not invaluable. But I was trying to work out. I didn't. I don't think I was as mathematic as you about it. But I did realize that if I just drunk every night, it would last me decades. Because whiskey, Absolutely. you know, a bottle of whiskey takes a while to get through, however hard you try. So you've got. So if you took, well, you know, let's divide it by two. About 365. So if you took your your bottles at your 150 bottles, and you, let's say 90% is left in, in them as an aggregate, right? And you had two shots per day, you could have two shots per day for, the, for over the next four and a half years, and, and you would not have worked through all of it yet. Okay. So you got you got plenty of whiskey out. You have more open bottles probably than I do, to be to, to be fair. Yeah. Because um that's that's a lot of open bottles to to try to get through. Because you know, whiskey doesn't after you've opened it, it doesn't last forever. You need to, some bottles will last like five, 10 years, but some bottles after a year and a half, they'll turn on you and they'll get them. Yeah. Especially but, if there's not much left in them. Yeah. And it, at least it's not like wine and, you know, you have to get through it in some, you know, three days. Like I've given, yeah. I've, I've got a bit of time, but now the world's opening up a bit. I am beginning to invite people to my house and drink some of it. But also I think it's a weird thing. I, I think I used to, my wife finds it a bit odd and it's an expensive hobby, but if I go to someone's house for dinner, I'll take a bottle of whiskey rather than a bottle of wine. Not yeah. expecting to drink it that night. It's just because I like sharing whiskey with people. But with my good whiskey friends, I'll bring around open bottles. Because a weird yeah. thing, obviously, turn up someone's house is like a half-eaten bottle of box of chocolates would be weird. But if if it's somebody you know and they like whiskey and you're like, you know, here's a third of a bottle of Avalauer 18, like that's... They love actually, it. Yeah, no yeah. one's going to complain about that. I'd be like, I can't believe you didn't bring me the whole bowl because I yeah. wouldn't give them a whole bowl. But yeah, I, so I, I give some away just because I, I think sharing whiskey is part of the charm of whiskey. It's the best part of it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hands down the best part of it because you can, I agree with you 100% because you can share a bottle of whiskey with 20 folks. You can't do that with a bottle of wine. Yeah, you can share a bottle of wine with maybe three other people, and then you each get a glass. And five minutes later, you're wondering what you're going to do next. But you know, you can legitimately share a, a bottle of whiskey with a whole bunch of folks, or just a few folks. It, it can be a 
a long night of just you and a buddy, or it can be an an early evening with you and ten buddies. However, you, however you want to do it, and that is one of the beautiful things about whiskey. It is. I think it's becoming harder now for a combination of uh, I'm getting older and I do it more often. But there was a point that I I could remember conversations with people based on the whiskey. So I'd be like, you know, I, you know, do you remember Jim when we, you know, we drunk, you know, this together? And I could I could remember what I drunk with different people in different places. And like I said, it's it's getting harder now. I think some of it is because I. I'm old and my memory's going, but and also I, I've drunk quite a lot now, so it's harder to remember. But there was distinctly a period where I would talk to friends and be like, "Do you remember when?" Like I remember who was in the room and who couldn't open the Glenlivet Twenty Five magnets with me, um, and I remember who I was with when I drank Balvenie Fifty, which is the most expensive whiskey I've drunk. And I can't do that with wine or tequila or beer or you know, pizza toppings, like whiskey is the only thing that I can use as a reference point for memories and discussions and conversations. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool that way. Like it's one of the reasons why I love it. Whiskey is, it really is special in how it, you know, when I worked in retail, you would have people talk about, people would come in and look for a bottle of whiskey or, or a bottle of wine too, to be fair. And they would say, yeah, it's, it's this great bottle. It's got kind of a white label and, and it had this, and they would start to describe all the notes and you could see them getting a little starry eyed about it. And you'd have to stop and say, no, no, wait a minute. Can you tell me about when you had this bottle? Like, what were you doing? Yeah. And it would always be the same thing. It'd be like, oh yeah, I was at the bar and this really good looking person came up and was talking to me about it. And you're like, so, so, so this is why you don't remember what the bottle is or what it looks like. You had a great moment in time and that's what made this so good. Yeah. And it's funny, like with whiskey, it, it can happen that way. And it can also be reversed where a buddy of mine and I were talking about certain bottles that we own that are now worth quite a bit of money. And the justification of like, do, do you keep that bottle and drink it? Or do you, you just let it go so you can get other bottles or just because it's become so expensive that it's, it's, it's no longer, it just doesn't make sense to keep it. And what we both agreed on is we have regretted letting go of bottles we've never regretted opening a bottle, no matter what the bottle was. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So like in the Balvany 50 or with you in the, the, the Glenlivet 25, you like you open that bottle and you share it with someone and you, and you, you really do remember it forever. Whereas if you had sold it for whatever it was, you, that money's gone. It goes to rent or whatever. Yeah. Whatever. No, I think, I think that's right. I think I, there was a German guy on you. He was, the, I wasn't, I was just into my beginning to learn about whiskey. Was, and there's a German guy who loved it. And he had a cellar at his house, which he showed me. And he had about 300 bottles on one side of the cellar and 300 on the other. And one side, it was very German. It was all, it's like, yeah. I think it was alphabetized. And- no, but it was like, it was very specific. <laughs> I was like regions of Scotland and age and whatever. Anyway. Um, but he had a, a collecting half. I mean, he, this guy wasn't short of money. But he had a collecting half and a drinking half. And he was, I think once he got very drunk and like stumbled into the wrong side and started drinking the collecting ones. Um, but he was very specific about like, these are investments that are going up in value and I'm not going to drink them. And then the others are to drinking. And that's lovely. Um, and maybe I know enough people in the whiskey world that I could do that, but I, I have no interest in that. I'm not... I just want to drink whiskey with people. I mean, I had one the other day. It's stupid. It's not even, a, I don't think, a great whiskey. But when Rangers won their 55th 
championship. I bought a bottle of whiskey. Uh, not because I'm a Rangers fan, but we work with Rangers a bit, so I mm-hmm. bought this bottle of whiskey. And it was 55 quid, and it's it's a 55 whiskey blend. This is what it is. And yeah. I don't exactly know what the blends are, but, you know, it's fifty. It's about 50 pounds. And I had to leave it at my parents' house because you couldn't ship it over. And when I went back to England, I picked it up, and I put something on Twitter saying, you know, I've just picked this up. And then people started sending me links to eBay. And this thing, you can, it's now going for like 250, 300 pounds because, oh, wow. just because, not because of its real value. It's a classic. It's, you get yeah, this yeah. a lot with bourbon where it's not because it's old or special. It's just straight up supply and demand and it you know, creates a market. And I, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to sell a 300 quid whiskey, but I didn't buy it to hope it triples in value. I bought it because I wanted to be part of it. And next time I sit down with some Rangers fans, I'll drink it with them. And that's worth more to me than a whiskey that's gone up by 200 pounds. Now, obviously, if it starts being a few thousand, that becomes different. But Maybe, just, maybe not. But maybe not. I think whiskey, yeah. whiskey's for drinking. Yeah. Um, and so I've talked about this with somebody. You know, I I plan on buying a very good Balvenie at some point soon, a special treat. Maybe my 50th birthday, I'll get myself a 30 or maybe a 40. But I'm not going to buy the 50 because that's $40,000. And yeah. that's a collecting whiskey. <laughs> And I could buy it for 40 and it would go up. Almost definitely it would go up in value. But I don't want that. I want to buy a whiskey that's 1,000, 2,000 and drink that with very special people on very special occasions rather than just buy a collector's one. But- and, no, you, I, I think you're dead on because remember, anyone that you pour that whiskey for is going to be a very special night for them. And the same thing with the Rangers bottle. Yeah, maybe you make a couple hundred quid off it, but but when you open it for whoever you open it for and they have it, like what what – what's the worth of giving someone a night that they never forget, right? Like it's, it's kind of awesome. Yeah, no, indeed. So obviously in your job, you drink whiskey, you blend whiskey, you visit distilleries, you do tastings. What's your favorite part of the business? I, I think it's, there's two there's two parts of the business that I truly love. And that's one is the education side. When you see someone who is young and really into it and they come at it from a completely different viewpoint than you do, when they get into whiskey and they're into it for a very different reason that you were, and they like different types of whiskey that you like, and, and they, they've got their own thing going on. I find that exciting, rejuvenating. Like it's, I think that's really cool because it reminds me that the category is forever changing. You're never going to be able to narrow it. Like you're never going to be able to grasp it and hold it. You, you just have to kind of ride the wave because it's going to carry you through, through what it is as it continues to evolve. Because if you look at the, one of the first things I learned about whiskey was you can buy a bottle of any brand from no matter how big they are and how much money they have, but that bottle will taste different from one vintage to the next, to the next, to the next. And especially if you take snapshots over five and 10 year periods, what they're releasing is, is different than what they would have released five or 10 years earlier, simply because they're using different yeast, they're using different barleys, different production processes, homogenization of the industry, all of that. And so whenever I see someone that's coming into it and they bring that fresh new look to it, that, that also complements what the whiskey's doing. I, I love that part of my job the most. The second, the second part that I love the most is just, just going to see where the whiskey's made, torn it. Like there's nothing better than being drunk in the back of a warehouse of a, of a distillery and just kind of shooting the shit with a bunch of folks and, and having a good evening. Like I, I love that part of it too. 
the sales and the administration and the, the operations and all that, you know, that's a necessary evil of it. It's not the part that I love the most, but but I'm grateful to have it because it pays the rent. But um, but what I love the most is like just drinking with the producers and seeing new people come into the fold and bringing their their young eyes into it. Not young as in necessarily age young, but young as in whiskey age young. That makes yeah. sense. So obviously, I, I've been lucky enough to visit plenty of Scottish distilleries. Well, I've never been to Japan and obviously therefore never been to a Japanese distillery. You have, mm-hmm. presumably, plenty of times. What 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 are Japanese distilleries like? Because obviously part of the fun of the Scottish one is you walk in, there'll be some guy who's been making barrels for 50 years. And uh, you know, you go to Balvenie and there'll be people who've been there for they pride themselves on having people who've been there for a very long time. And they're very sort of salt of the earth Scottish, you know, big men who love their whiskey. What 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 does a Japanese distillery look and feel like? Well, the the ones that I've been to, you know. Like two, one producer of mine, seven generations, the other one, six generations. So it's, it's long standing family stuff. And it's the little things that you see, like one of my producers in the still room, you take off your shoes before you go in. So you go in and you take off your shoes and then they give you slippers to walk into where everything's being made. Cause it's kept that clean. Mm-hmm. If you took a picture, I have a picture of the forklift and I took a picture of the tire and he looked at me like I was crazy. Cause I had never seen a forklift that didn't have dirt on its tire. And he had these beautiful green tires on his forklift inside the distillery and not a smudge of dirt on any of them. They still looked brand mm-hmm. new. And I asked him how old the forklift was. He's like, we've had it for years and it's just perfect. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is you get the same smells and everything. You get the same smell of the casks, that little bit of dampness, that richness, the mushroomy quality. But the other thing is because some of these distilleries were built back in the 1800s and, and in Scotland, they tend to have... Um, revamped a lot of the interior between then and now but in some of the japan ones like the koji room where they do the um where they cultivate the koji which acts to give the amylase for the fermentation to be nice and healthy it's the same koji room they've had for you know 150 years so the door is short because it was originally built for a guy who is six inches to a foot shorter than what his great 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 grandson is yeah so you just go up to it and you're like a door comes up to your shoulder you're like what's going on he's like yeah well you know better medicine better nutrition we're all taller now and that's, oh. that's what it is. So little things like that is great. Amazing. But it's but a lot of it's the same as going into a Scotch whiskey distillery. You have some distilleries where you, you know, everything's kind of everywhere and it's a hot mess of of a masterpiece where they're just kind of putting it all together. And then and then some distilleries are just very meticulously like they look like industrial operations. And it's, yeah. it's the same. So Scotch and Japanese whiskey are well known. Um, let's talk Israeli whiskey. <laughs> Belgian whiskey and Indian whiskey. So yes. You know, we had a guy on from Starwoods. So we've had Australian whiskey on here, which is very good, actually. Uh, but I, obviously, you know, the world has changed and people want to try things from different places. Tell me about, about those whiskeys, both in terms of, you know, your experience of them, but also trying to sell them, whether people understand what they are and are they novelties or do people see the real value of them? It's still a growing category for sure. Everyone, you know, the the most common thing you hear is like Israeli scotch or, you know, Belgian scotch, because they, they just assume that it's, it's they forget this, the scotches can only be made in, in Scotland only. So it's Israeli single malt or Belgian single malt. But um, they all, it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge because you have to, 
people people are like, well, they kind of thumb their nose up at some of the new countries because they're like, well, how how can they be making something that's like this? And you're like, well, they took the fact that they've invested so much money into doing something in this country to to invest all the money into making a distillery is to pay homage to the type of whiskey that they love. It kind of makes sense, right? They, they it just works. The challenge in selling, or the it's, the joy in selling it, is that it's bringing a new dimension to what single malt can be. Like the Belgian single malt has got like a fuzzy, um, a fuzzy texture to it, a different type of a different type of mouthfeel, and it's because instead of using open fermentation vats, they're still using very controlled fermentation vats, and they're literally making a a Belgian ale without the without the hops in it, and and very meticulous style, like they're making a beer. In the Israeli stuff, you're getting a lot of oak influence because of where the whiskey's being matured. And um, in the Welsh whiskey, because they're using the Faraday still as opposed to a regular copper pot still, you get a, a whole different fruit component to it. That's a combination of the yeast and the high ABV coming off the still and the amount of copper contact. So it's just um, it's just like an expansion of the pie. People are some people really get into it. Some people are not ready for it. And it's it's absolutely fine and cool. A lot of other guys are seeing the same thing with American single malt whiskeys, right? There's now over 2,000 distilleries in the United States making distill of one form or another. And, and they're trying to find their way within within the categories as well. Yeah. So it's cool. Uh, Welsh is interesting because when I was a diplomat and we had a Welsh... So if we did generic events promoting Britain, we would use single malt scotch because why wouldn't we uh, but when we had welsh ministers come and visit in the way that we did things we i did it in germany and in america where we do events and we would get welsh products so we'd get welsh beer welsh cheese which was amazing uh, there was one brand called snowdonia which did these sort of flavored cheeses and different colored wheels which were extraordinary but we did welsh whiskey because it's the right thing to do and pendarian sort of 10 years ago was not amazing. Um, and we'd often have events and, you know, at the end of it, we'd sort of have Pendarin left over and we'd sort yeah. of try and give it away to people and they're like, no, I'm, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> uh, but then I had Pendarin, I really was, I can't remember where, I was at an event up in uh, Oregon and I think I bumped into it at the airport. You did, you bumped into one of my guys. Yeah, that's right, I was at the airport, bumped into one of your people. Anyway. Um, and you you saw me at the airport, but then you saw one of my guys at the event. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly <laughs> right. You were going to Hawaii, I think, um, and I was going to Oregon. But anyway, um, that's when I discovered that you were the Pandaren people. And you're like, it's great now. I'm like, no, Chris, it's undrinkable. And you're like, no, no, it's really good. I'm like, yeah, Chris, you're very good at your sales job, but you can't, you know, you can't send it to me. I'm, I work for British government. They went to this event and they've redesigned brand the bottles but the the liquid is significantly better pandaren has become very very drinkable now yeah they, there's a girl named Aista phillips who's the master blender over there and i i equate her to being she's like the Jimi hendrix of whiskey she knows that warehouse better than he knew his fretboard she she's she's got the palate she is she's just kind of awesome and that that whiskey i know exactly what you're referring to because i remember trying pandaren 10 years ago and kind of feeling the same way about it and when we started talking to them about signing them to come to the company, we tried it again. And I remember just being completely flabbergasted as to how different it was from what I remember it being. It is, it is awesome whiskey now. They've definitely dialed it in. And now they've, you know, they've seen, they're building two more distilleries. So they've, they've obviously done well with it because they've got enough funds to expand into two more facilities and they're, they're just going for it. It's great. 
Like that, that's been a big win. And you know, what's fun about that is that whiskey in the United States, we bottle it at a different ABV than they bottle it in the UK. So we actually bottle it at 43% in the United States for the Dragon Series. In the UK, it's 41 because um, Americans like things to be more bigger and bolder. Ah. So that might have something to do with it too. Who knows? There you go. Very good. Um, we could talk about whiskey all night, but um, that's not how podcasting works. So we are actually <laughs> going to have to end the podcast um, with the final question, which is, as you know, if you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? What would it be? And where would it be? That is, you know, I, I know about this question because I've, I've listened to the podcast and I've never really been able to come up with an answer. And now that I'm put on the spot, I think it would be either of my grandmothers. My mom's mom was a third shift factory worker for as long as, long as I was alive before she passed. And I think she did that for many decades before. She, she was, she was like, she was a she was a tough woman. Like one finger didn't move because she had cut all the nerves in it. And like she was a tough woman. I, I think she would get a kick out of, and she and I were really close. I think she would get a kick out of the fact that I ended up literally making a living out of talking about and selling booze and just kind of goofing off half the time. <laughs> Cause I could just see her like, you know, she worked third shift in a factory for so many decades. And she's like, wait, you do what? I'm like, no, it's cool, Nance. We're, we're good. <laughs> so I think I would have it with her. And the place that we would have it is right here in my house. Cause she would, then she could see her great grandkid. Cause she's simple like that. And then um, the whiskey that we would have is probably either. It could be easily the whiskey that we, you and I are drinking now because I'm the blender for that distillery. So I could tell her like I had influence on this. I think she would, She'd get a kick out of that too. It'd just be more of like, I could see her grow up because they grew up poor and she grew up really poor on a farm in North Carolina. And I could just that evolution of her childhood to what I'm doing as an adult now in California would, I think she would get a kick out of it. Yeah. So that would be the person. Mag magnificent answer. That's a great answer. So Chris Uday, the 2016 Prince of Whiskey <laughs> for Los Angeles. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. And it should be noted, they haven't named another one since, so I still hold the title. <laughs> is, that a, is that a real thing? You are no, it was just a random article, but like they haven't done another article about it. So it's just kind of like... Oh, uh, wow. So in the presence of greatness, so you are the, the reigning voice of whiskey for Los Angeles. Until you go and write another article saying, this guy's a knucklehead. It should be David Laird. No, no, no. I like this. No, no, but... Yeah, they're just ambassadors for one brand. They're not the voice of whiskey. They're just the voice of a brand. You're no, but you're legitimately. This is why it's quite interesting talking to you because everyone else I've heard on who are whiskey people have been, with the exception of Chris Custer, who was the first episode, but that was mostly about rugby. We talked, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, everyone else has been, you know, mostly about it's their whiskey story, but they've talked about their brand, but. You are everything. And you're not just Scotch, you know, you're you're Scotch and Japanese and Belgian and Israeli and screw top rice whiskey. Like you're everything. And, and I think that makes it fascinating. <laughs> I'm an indiscriminate alcoholic, so we're afraid. No, you are, you know, you've got everything <laughs> except the donuts. But it's uh, it's been great to have you on. So thank you very much. The reigning voice of whiskey in Los Angeles, Chris Uday. Thanks, Dan. Mm, I love Scotch. 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 Yep. Scotch.
And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>